to Midlife Moxie. We are a community and podcast all about midlife women making this one of the best seasons of their lives. Well, I'm one of your hosts, Gail. And I'm Christina. We're going to be sharing our stories, struggles, and joys while bringing you experts on topics that you care about. And we're going to do it while having a whole lot of fun. So buckle up, girls. Let's get our Moxie on. Well, hey there, we're back, Christina, with one of our most popular guests. Mm. And we're not going to take a lot of time talking here in the beginning of the episode because this is so rich. We have so much to get to. Um, But I'm excited for the conversation, aren't you, Christina? Absolutely, I am. You know, this is one of those conversations that I think that all of us have in midlife um, and even before midlife for some of us. And so this conversation is going to be rich. It's going to be fruitful and it's going to give people a starting point, I think, to identify what's going on with them. Well, you know, this word and this topic gets thrown around a lot, Mm. a lot, a lot these days, but we're going to get into the, we're going to get in the deep water in Mm -hmm. it. So we want to welcome back licensed clinical social worker, Liz Watley from Greenville, South Carolina. Hi, Liz. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh, yes. man, we're just going to call you a regular. We mm-hmm. want you back. And people, Deal. the people have spoken, they like hearing what you have to say. And even my husband listened to the episode and he said, man, Liz is good. Yeah. And I do want to recognize you because I have, like, during my years of raising children, we've been in front of many therapists. My first child went to therapists mm-hmm. after my first divorce. You know, we've done family therapy. My husband saw a therapist after his near-death event. And um, you're the best, Liz. I felt like others were going down a checklist and they were not listening. They were just marking it off. But, I mean, you do some important work. Um, I know other people who have visited you and they would say the same thing. So, so we're not just having any therapist on the street. We've got the Liz Watley. So let's get into it. I bet you're wondering what the word is, Christina. Tell them the word. Depression. No, it's depression, you guys. And we don't have to make it a sauntery word. We don't have to make it a bad word. It's just a word. It's a word. Depression. So Liz, with that, tell us what depression actually is. Okay. So thank you, Gail, for your kind words too. Oh, so great to be with you all. And I'm so grateful for the platform that you all have created because I too received a lot of messages um, in the podcast about anxiety and just um, gratitude for the authenticity and the talk that the three of us, all three of us shared. So Thank oh, you, I love thank that. You, thank you. If we yeah. if we want to be nothing here, we want to be real and authentic. And, and we want to support sometimes. Yeah, when we bring on a professional like you, we want to ask the questions that the person on the street doesn't get to ask. I mean, you don't get to interview all your therapists before you choose one. You don't. <laughs> and sometimes we don't even know what to ask, or you know, we don't know what things mean. It can just be totally overwhelming. And like we've said before, some things you don't want to Google, and some things you certainly should not Google. Well, I think by opening up this conversation, um, it, it really helps our community and it helps to normalize the conversation. So I just want to personally say thank you because I know a lot of my friends here in California, they were like, 
girl, that was a really good message. And so I'm glad that you guys are getting that same feedback from your, you know, your circle of influence as well. So this is really good. And like, I'm oh, my hand is over my heart, everybody, because I'm like so filled up that we're serving you well. And that is a big deal. It's a big, big deal. So thank you, Liz, so much. Either that, Christina, or our audience is just disproportionately mentally ill. And (laughs) it's one or the other. Oh, I hope it's... I hope it's not the later. There may be be a reason they're following our show, Christina. There may be some relatability there. So, Liz, enough of our tomfoolery. We said we weren't going to do that, but we can't help ourselves. But what is depression? Yes. Okay. So, depression is, and um, by the way, you know, uh, your listeners likely uh, know someone who has gone through depression. So whether or not that's somebody that's in their family or themselves, or they're wondering if what I'm experiencing is depression or not depression. So depression, um, well, first we'll say what it's not. You know, it's not feeling sad. It's not, um, let's say, responding to so to a, an event that would create sadness in anyone. Right. It's not this. So whether that be a recent death um, or that maybe it's a bad day, um, an argument with your partner or your friend. And I will put a little asterisk there that that tends to affect women more. uh, So we can come back to that piece. But it is not a it's it's not something that is just. Uh, low self-esteem or just sadness. It is something that is a persistent low mood that affects the body, mind, spirit, relationships. It, It has a significant impact and interrupts one's life. Mm. And we're over here taking notes, Liz. So please forgive us. I see this. I can see you all. I see that. Well, you know, we want to serve this community well. And so, you know, wow, this just opens up a whole lot of things. Because one of the things that we were trying to find out is this or can this be a genetic disposition too? So is that something? Absolutely. So whenever, and and this is true for... Um, the majority of mental health. Uh, so I want to make that part clear. So when I say the majority of mental health, that doesn't, I mean, those um, that come from say trauma, like post-traumatic stress disorder, there still may be a genetic component to being, um, having a higher susceptibility to having PTSD, but it's not as if, in other words, the trauma is genetic typically. Um, but when you're talking about um, mental health disorders like major depressive disorder, bipolar, um, anxiety disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, they are all um, genetic and can be genetic. Okay. It doesn't mean necessarily that we are aware that my second cousin's third uncle had this. Um, We may not be aware because they may not have been diagnosed or somebody may have really hit it really well. We may be adopted and not have um, information on our biological family. There are studies, though, that suggest, too, that twins separated at birth um, 
and raised in different homes can still have a higher likelihood of major depressive disorder when that's a significant part of their genetic history. Okay, we're going to oh, sit in wow. this one for a hot yeah, minute. Yeah, we got okay. to we we go there, Gail. Let's Several go there. Several questions I'm going to throw out and <laughs> let you decide how to, how, to, how to package this up. Okay, first of all, genetics is involved. How much is it involved? Is depression something you have or something you develop? And should we be concerned if a parent or grandparent, aunt, uncle, have major depressive disorder, bipolarism, severe anxiety? Let's talk about all that. And I'll let you just package that up however you want. Yes. Okay. I love these questions. Really thoughtful questions. So thank you for that. Um, first of all, should you be concerned if a parent or somebody has a major depressive disorder, um, not if they're receiving treatment, not if they're um, seeking help, I should say, actively, not if uh, you are seeing them engaged in in wanting and in, in engaged in efforts to improve their functioning. Again, as we, if anybody listened to the anxiety podcast, one of the things we talked about was to understand the severity of something, you really can begin to look at it more in black and white. And there's not a lot of mental health things that we can really look at in black yeah. and white. But it, if it's, significantly interrupting your relationship with your partner or your children or your friendships. If it's something that you are no longer participating in things you really used to love or things you liked to do. Um, if you are having health problems like chronic pain, um, digestive disorders come about. If you are checking off all these boxes mm -hmm. that are interrupting various places of your life, including work and pleasure, then you're dealing with a much bigger issue. And so there's no reason to be concerned. I mean, I, that we don't want to, um, we don't want to be a part of the stigma, mm. right? So if somebody says, Hey, I have bipolar disorder and I am, you know, receiving counseling, or I've been working on this for quite some time or whatever, maybe they talk to a preacher or, you know, a, neighbor and they seem like they're handling it, they're just telling you a part of them, right? Yeah. There's no reason to be concerned. Now, if they aren't doing those things, there might be reason to be concerned and they may be mentioning it to you because they're wanting some help mm. or they're wanting to be seen or heard. So we can definitely get back to that. I know it was the third part. Yeah, because I want to tie that to remember in. the first part. Okay, where I want to go with that is... For ourselves, if we have a close relative, parent, grandparent, aunt or uncle, who mm. has struggled or suffered with or been afflicted by some type of serious mental illness, how much, because of the genetic components, should we be concerned about our own mental wellness? And that's mm -hmm. my new word, Liz. I don't want to talk about mental health. I want to talk about mental. mental why don't we wellness. call it mental health? It's mental wellness. Let's talk about wellness. Yeah. Let's work on Beautiful. wellness. I love that. But I'm wondering, you know, I have friends whose parents have had, or grandparents have serious things. And I think that's, you know, it's, it's kind of like, 
if your mother has breast cancer, you're going to be on edge about breast cancer. If if my parent has severe anxiety, bipolarism, severe depressive disorder, how concerned should I be about that afflicting me at some point? Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, I love your, your shift in language. I'm going to work on that today too, in the mental wellness. It's beautiful and it's much more holistic. Um, so thank you for that. I'll invite you to shift the word concerned, uh, how concerned you might need into just, um, more of awareness. Mm-hmm. I think it was concerned you said. Yeah. And so th- there's no reason to, you know, worry about something that may or may not can happen. So let's see, use the breast cancer, for example. Um, it's, it's not going to serve me, assist me in any way. If I have, um, multiple people in my family who have breast cancer and for me to sit around and the audience probably can't see me, but I'm twirling my thumbs and just worry, am I going to get it? 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 What is going to assist me? Awareness. Yes. This is in my family. And, and I, I'm speaking way out of school when I'm speaking of breast cancer. So I apologize to you all in the audience if I say something inaccurate. From what I understand, there are things that are genetically linked in breast cancer mm-hmm. and some that are not. You know, if yeah. you're clear it's a genetic or not, awareness, education on the subject. We don't need to be totally obsessed about mm-hmm. it, but how can we find information on this just to increase our awareness? Knowledge is power. The more we know, the more we can find out if this is something that affects me. Other actions, self-exams making sure that your gynecologist or your primary care physician is aware of the family history, particularly if the family history has changed in some way. So being in open communication with um, those medical supports that are in your life. And then also, you know, if you have a close family member or partner or a close friend that you feel emotionally safe enough to be vulnerable with, then I do invite people and encourage people to say, hey, this is my family history. Mm. If you ever start to see something in me that seems um, off or seems not like the me that you've always known, um, I would greatly appreciate you talking to me about that. And that level of accountability is really lovely because sometimes we are not always aware of what other people may be experiencing from us. Mm. So particularly say depression, we, now we may, we're aware of our mood and how we feel, but we aren't as aware. It is like, so like we're drowning sometimes, right? right? We're not as aware. How are other people experiencing this? And sometimes that can really uh, be the catalyst to getting good service and assistance with our mental wellness. So, so when you're looking at, you know, we talked about genetics. What about the differences between men and women or even between the ages? Like what is the most common age that you find people are recognizing? May I say that? Recognizing that they are, or that they might have some of these things, you know, it sounds like you made this list and you said, okay, if you're suffering from these things, it might be a good idea to go talk to somebody. So what is the age group that you see this happening to the most? And is there a difference between men and women? 
tell us about that. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So by the way, I love doing these podcasts because um, I realized so much of when when I was in school, when I was in grad school, and this is accurate and it remains accurate, that major mental health um, disorders typically rear its head, to uh, use that analogy, around uh, early 20s. And there, that is not inaccurate. That's when you will begin to see um, particularly those that are more likely to have a lifelong struggle or to have that, that pure genetic uh, disposition about it, you'll see that begin to spike up right around the brain development of early 20s. Having said that, because I have the privilege of being on the podcast with you all, and I know that you're focused on midlife, I kind of gear my research in that way. And I, that, that's the population I see as a therapist the most too, um, particularly with depression, are women in midlife. I have to tell you, I was shocked to find that women are 50% more, 50, 50, 50% more likely in middle age to have depression than men in middle age to have depression. Why is that? I mean, have they done some research on that? What's, what is that from? Like, why... Why? Well, you know, there's the big H word. The big H word is our big thing. Anybody want to guess? Hormones. Right, right. right. So, you know, it gets better. (laughs) It does. Why do they get better and we get like all this? Yeah, they get stressed out. We get blood, (laughs) hormones, mental illness. But I want to ask you a question because this came up in our last episode. You mentioned that women report more anxiety, but men actually have higher rate of suicide. Is this statistic, is this among, I'm trying to make sure we understand what this statistic means, higher 50% more likely to report depression or actually 50% Mm -hmm. more likely to have it. Yeah. Good question. Beautiful question, Gail. Beautiful question. So yeah, this is my reaction to seeing the statistics was a mix of, um, a, a little bit of a mix of, you know, I'm not sure that's totally true, right? Now to read it word for word, it said 50% more prone to depression. Wow. So I guess I'd have to Google the actual definition of the word prone to to figure out what this study was really looking for. But with everything, Gail, everything we want to look at, I have seen a lot of men in my practice. Men, by the way, have hormones too. And their hormones shift also, right? Yeah, we know As about their age. hormones. <laughs> <laughs> um, men have, the men I see, you know, have seen for depression, they typically, it's related to um, their ability to perform in the workplace or um, physical issues that are associated with it. So it, it affects men. And as Gail, you mentioned, there's a, um, they, men still are the gender with the higher rates of suicide. Um, the, as far as reasons why, so I don't know. And that's why we have to look at everything when it comes to research and, and just be aware. Again, this is my word for the day is just awareness. Be aware that if you're a man and are listening to this, first of all, welcome. Bless your heart as we say in the <laughs> South. We're so grateful you're here. Uh, <laughs> um, and, it, you know, th- there's nothing that is 
to say that this is just something that happens Mm. to women. Now, there are psychosocial things that make uh, that, again, research, the people that study these things suggest that make women more prone to it as well. So we have hormones, hormones that are fluctuating around um, uh, perimenopause, menopause, um, having children. And they, you know, we have this beautiful gift of being able to Uh, do amazing things with our body, like bring children into the world. And then these hormones later in life begin to have rapid fluctuation, particularly in perimenopause, Mm -hmm. right? So we're, our brain is still telling our ovaries what to do. Everything is going up and down, up and down, up and down. And it's difficult to keep up with. What were you saying, Gail? I just said, yeah, buddy, they do. Now, I I do want to ask a question there. It seems to me, it feels as though, whether it's true or not, that women are more likely to carry around the burdens of others. Like if our children are unhappy or are struggling, if our husband is unhappy with his work, like I try to carry that for him. Now, we know that I'm a diagnosed empath. <laughs> Some of Liz's finest work there. Um, is that just me or do you think that's common for most women and that increases our chances of feeling overwhelmed, anxious, and depressed. Absolutely. I think that's uh, very common for the majority of women. And some of that we look at as, you know, we could look at as feminine attributes and masculine attributes. There are certainly women who have more of those masculine personality traits, but most, uh, most of the women I know are the nurturers, the ones who hold the glue in the family, the ones that hold everything together. And it is, um, it can be a burden when there is a lot to carry. So yes, let's say um, is those, most women, uh, again, to think about it in a feminine attributes kind of way, are intuitive, are feeling, you know, when we're sharing with one another, we're not just hearing, we're also feeling what the other is feeling too. And when our partners, when our friends, when our family, you know, communities are going through very challenging times, men have a way of going out and playing golf. Yeah. And it's not as if they don't care. They care. But they, and this goes into the psychosocial things that make women more susceptible to that typically men are more able to use distraction in coping with the stresses of their life. And women either choose not to, or it's just not as easy because as Gail mentioned, we are carrying this Mm. for our family and um, sometimes not, not necessarily needed. Now, do you see cultural differences as well between the different cultures? I would say cultural differences in diagnoses. Um, and in presentation. And so, you know, because, so for instance, the way that um, an African-American male may present with depression, um, it's going to look different than, say, a white female. And we, um, so much of our society, we're getting away from this for sure, but so much of our society has been based on um, you know, being white and the culture of that, that there have been a lot of misdiagnoses along the way 
um, for people of color mm-hmm. and people of different um, nationalities and in different cultures. Other things to consider, say, if you're in a culture where eye contact isn't something that's considered appropriate or respected, respectable, uh, and you come in and you're working with a therapist who's noting you know, eye contact seems to be off or they feel uncomfortable being in a room with a female if they're a male. Well, they may have a lot of cultural things that are going into play with that kind of behavior. Absolutely. So it's, you know, I would say diagnosis is different. Um, again, I mean, everything from diet might be different in different cultures, propensity towards believing in something bigger than yourself. So yeah, there's certainly cultural differences, probably in addition to even having a clinical expression of depression. Yeah. Um, But there's a lot that we don't know about as well. Well, the thing that I was telling Gail this morning as we were getting ready to, you know, enter into this conversation, I had mentioned to her a little bit about our family history. And uh, my mom is Japanese, so she's half Japanese and half uh white, well, whatever that is, right? European. And in in the Asian culture, or at least Japanese culture, you don't you don't say anything. Like you just you just suck it up, buttercup, and you keep going. And my great grandfather had a really hard time with that. I mean, just like the pressure and ended up taking his own life. You know, so there is definitely a huge difference. And I really appreciate that you answered that question because, you know, in America, right, we're a melting pot of different cultures, ethnicities. And so this is a really great starting point for people so that when they go into the office, they can say, this is my background because that helps you as the therapist, mm-hmm. right? This is my background. This is what you're working with. You know, Even our right. familial situations are so different. I did pretty much come from a suck it up buttercup. I mean, when I became a, you know, a grouchy teen, my parents' first response was not to take me to a therapist. I can assure you it was to bust my bottom side or ground me. You know, that just was not, you know... Okay, so may I speak one more thing about um, about the culture real quick? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, I think it's and I and I don't want to pretend to be an expert on all cultures um, because I'm certainly not. And you know, but I think that's such wise advice to say. You know, when you're going, you're working with someone to to let them know. You know, here's the culture because we can't tell looking at each other what our backgrounds are. And, um, you know, maybe some interesting research. I think I read recently that the um, adolescent suicide rate is actually a lot higher right now in Japan than it's been in quite some time. And so, again, where does it where does it come from there? Is that cultural? Sometimes it is remaining silent. Sometimes it's the pressure to always succeed, succeed, succeed. And sometimes it comes from lots of other places, too. So very interesting. Okay. So I want to shift a little bit here into when, first I want to ask you this one question, then I want to go on with this. Depression is the word overutilized or underutilized? Because I have some theories here, but I'm probably wrong. So. Oh, I doubt you're wrong, Gail. I find you very (laughs) wise and intuitive. Um, She's on the payroll. (laughs) Uh, so, I, I mean, overused in the um, 
as far as just in everyday conversation and underused in regards to really knowing what it means and then saying it like, I feel like you're dealing with depression if you're talking to a friend or family member. I wonder if this is something that's going on or we have a family history of depression. So underused in a way that's accurate and helpful and I think overused in a way that's maybe attention seeking and trying to define having oh, a bad day. Oh, she said attention seeking. Oh, okay, there she's go. going there. There you go. Because go. here's my theory. Yeah, go girl. Brace yourself. Um, <laughs> I, my generation, the midlife generation, the people who are midlife now, you were, we were raised a little bit more suck it up buttercup because we had those parents who some of them, you know, they had parents who lived through the depression. So they were raised that way. My parents mm-hmm. were from the work hard generation. You can't work too much. There's no such thing as family work balance. You know, you you know, have integrity and work hard and that's the best human you can be. But what I have noticed, you know, I look at my parents' generation myself and then I look at my children who are in the millennial and Gen X generation. And it seems like there, since we have shifted to openly talking about mental health, because back in my day, like when, when I was say 20, if you mentioned having depression or anxiety, you'd be like, crazy, you know, you mm-hmm. didn't want to be crazy. Mm-hmm. But now there almost seems to be, and I, I, I don't want to disrespect anyone, everyone near my heart. Sometimes there seems to be some excuse making, mm. almost a badge of honor, almost. Victim. Th- the, definitely some victim. Mm-hmm. The kids today seem to like having a diagnosis. That seems to be <laughs> all so the rage to have diagnoses. And I'm like, well, what's wrong? A- am I wrong? Am I right? What's going on here? Oh, that's to me to answer, right? Like, yeah, okay. you're the expert. Yeah, you're the here? expert, girl. <laughs> what the hell is? What's going on? Liz is like, what's oh, going on here? That's a, that's a, let's there's, unpack, there's let's unpack it, Liz. Let's unpack it, girl. <laughs> and tell me if I'm completely like, nope, Gail, that's not true. Yeah. Cause we might just no, be you're, like, you're accurate. you know, we might just be like the old fogies that think that we're just, Are we just turds. Yeah. I think she said I was right. <laughs> Christina, write that down. Liz yes. said it. <laughs> It's it's recorded, girl. We got it. There's fewer things that I like right, better than right. being right. <laughs> so um, on a on a bit of a more serious note to that, there are um, situations or um, I don't know if phenomenons are the right way to use that word or not, but that a uh, copycat syndrome, mm. and so something that might be. Some Googling fun for you all later. Uh, But let's say, you know, somebody, let's say a teenager comes into my office and they've had a best friend take their life. Um, Then I'm I'm concerned. I'm concerned. What are they talking about with their friends? You know, why am I concerned? There's not as much genetic. Obviously, there's no genetics. This is their friend. This is not their, you know, um, because of copycat behavior and because of that particular, um, um, developmental stage that they're in as well. Mm. Uh, this is something that is a significant thing. So while it can be a bit of an eye roll, you know, to say parents who have teenagers that may be coming in, I'm depressed or because it's, it's the new thing. It, it certainly is something to, 
always take seriously. And I tell you, if, if somebody's doing it, quote, just for fun, or just because if somebody's saying they're depressed or whatever it may be that label they want to put on themselves, and they're doing it because they think it's a social thing, you know, after month three or four of therapy, real, you know, um, clinical therapy, it's, the therapist is, you know, going to see that this isn't necessary and the kid's not going to want to go anymore. Right. So is it? Um, but we always take it seriously. No matter what. Is it awareness run amok? What What is, because it seemed like for so long we had no awareness. And then we're like, awareness, right. awareness, 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 to the point that it almost went overboard. Even though I see a large part of our population is still unaware. Um, yeah. Tend to be, for me, uh, people who are midlife and older still are not in that you know, we still kind of oh, don't know about that sketchy head stuff. And um, sometimes people who are lesser educated, maybe live in more rural areas, um, they're not into this phenomenon as much as the suburban youth seem to be just rife with diagnoses. And I don't know if it's good or ba bad, Liz, because I'm wondering, do they have a more keen awareness than we did and that's good? Or are they using these labels as excuses and are they labeling themselves something and setting up an expected well, behavior? And also attention too, right? Because there's there's some attention that gets gets brought into the picture when somebody does suffer with depression or any other other well, and who's going to ground their kid if they're depressed? You don't right, right. You know, you can yeah. as a parent, you can be held hostage by these these terms and these mm. labels and these things. I mean, Liz, help us out. We're in the we're in the weeds. Okay, so uh, you're not in any weeds, but you know, it, it, the bottom line too is that this is complicated. Mm. It's complicated. It's complicated to know and to try to figure out, which is I am biased, of course, and I invite uh, everybody who's listening. If you have a child or a teenager or if you have a parent, it's, it's just a little bit more dramatic sometimes with a child or, or with a teenager that's going through this. It's hard right. to know when, and, when is this something serious and when are they just trying to get out of going yeah. to school today or doing their homework? Well, and, and let's just be clear. When I was younger... 12, I think my parents started me in therapy at 12. I think we've, we've mentioned that before here. I told you you were blessed too. Uh, because we're, oh, absolutely. Please Stella know. Stella Noy were not signing me up. <laughs> Their therapy was to bust my tail and tell me to well, go to my well, room. Let me, let me say this. It was, it was the prompting, I believe, of my mom. My dad was not such a huge fan of therapy, but my mom is. And, uh, I think that for me, at least for me at that age, I was like, the F I have to go to therapy. This is stupid. You know, like I don't want to go. But now I'm like, oh, I need to talk to my therapist today. <laughs> oh, I'm really having one of those days, you know, and it's just like that daily vitamin that sometimes I need. And so is that the difference too, that some of these kids are like, yeah, I want to be depressed or I want to have this label. I didn't want to have the label. But that was right. a different time. And so there's so much to, again, unpack with even what you're sharing, right? So it's like we could go in for the next two hours. Why didn't you want to have the label? What was that about? Probably because maybe there was less people talking about it, um, you know. 
also because of family history, you know, of what you just shared, um, it, sometimes the, there's a fear of having a label because does that mean um, people are going to think I am going to take my life? Does that mean they think that I am crazy in some way? So for me, it is so challenging to look at things as a blanket statement. And overall, this is just because everything is individualized. And I know that doesn't necessarily help you all very much. Um, But what I was going to say earlier is that if you have a kid and you're just going, I don't know what to do. I don't know if they're using this to manipulate me, because by the way, all teenagers are manipulative by nature. Um, Are they using this to... um, get out of going to school. You know, I hear that a lot from parents too, whether it be anxiety or depression, are they, you know, because, or because they're hanging out with so-and-so and so-and-so has been in a mental hospital and now they're saying they, you know, are feeling this way. Is it attention seeking? Go into your own counseling is my recommendation. If you yourself are confused on how to help your family member or particularly your teen, go into your own counseling or seek your own support from somebody who's in the know because it's it's going to it needs to be I should say individualized to what those circumstances are and if you don't even know if I want to take my kid to counseling right now if your kid is saying something related to harming themselves significantly take them into counseling but you yourself get into counseling too um, and because you as the parent in those situations are their number one resource. And guess what? You're a human being too, which means that you're going to get overwhelmed, aren't going to know what to do and how to handle things sometimes. Okay. So that's a whole nother show, I think, the parenting yes. piece. Yes. We've got some other shows coming up. We have a gal that's going to come on. She actually wrote a book, I Married a Bipolar. Liz, you may have to be back up on that one. And um, yeah, <laughs> I can't wait because her husband wasn't diagnosed after they were married. Mm-hmm. So I think when we're going to have a whole show about dealing with people in our lives that yes. have mental illness, yes. and I can't yeah. wait. We might have you, if you're available, come on too. Um, okay, mm-hmm. let's roll it forward a little bit. At what point do we need to seek treatment and what does treatment look like? Because I'll tell y'all my story when I was struck in midlife with severe anxiety, like, oh, it's off the rails. It just slipped right off. And I had always had a simmering anxiety. I didn't know that. I had an ulcer in first grade as a child from just this overachieving type syndrome, type A personality. But when it ran off the rails, I had never been to a, a therapist for myself before. When I rolled into Liz's office, y'all literally carrying a blanket, and I did not know if I would get to go home that day. I was so afraid. That's what I said to her. I'm afraid I've gone crazy and that you're going to put me in the mental ward. And you assured me that wasn't happening. And you said, I see crazy. You're not crazy. I felt so much better. So I think we have some misunderstanding of what treatment is going to look like and we can be afraid. Well, and before we go there, can you just give us the umbrella like you did with anxiety? Is there is there a, an umbrella for depression? And then let's dive into Gail's question because that can be an array of different things, correct? Or is it? Okay. For our listeners, yes. just get a snack yeah. because this show may be over our average length. So get a snack. <laughs> <laughs> get a snack. Please do. Fuel yourself. Um, yeah. So the, this, is, this is part of it, right? So when 
the anxiety episode, it introduced this concept of the umbrella. So if you can visualize the umbrella and then it's the, you know, actually mood disorders is what's the top of that umbrella. So not just depression, it's mood disorders. And the part of those depression is a mood disorder. Mm. And um, so is bipolar. Bipolar is a mood disorder. Uh, then you know it gets it it gets even more um, detailed. So we have um, major depressive disorder, single episode, major depressive disorder, recurrent episodes. We have depressive disorders with psychotic features, and that would be depression that manifests itself into having um, hallucinations or delusions. We have major depressive disorder without psychotic features. We have, um, oh, I've just blanked on the name of it, but it is, I mean, I had it right before we started too. It'll come to me later, but, um, oh, dysthymia. And dysthymia is the, it's a, not as significant as a major depressive disorder or, or an episode, but it's more like years of a chronically low mood rather than, and I know people can't see my hands, but so if you imagine, you know, just kind of this flat land, just years or, you know, six months or more of this just flat, not getting happy over anything, not just feeling really, really flat. And and there's a time in life where we can recall being different and that this persists. And yet it's not to the point of, um, say, meeting all the criteria for what major depressive disorder is. There's also depressive disorder, NOS is a diagnosis, which stands for not otherwise specified. Um, There's adjustment disorder, which just is a fancy way of saying I've been through some change in and it has depressive features. So there's adjustment disorder with depressive features. Um, that would be, say, somebody who has um, been fired from a job or let go from a job, you know, and then they are having what would be considered a normal um, reaction to that. But maybe it starts to, to last even longer, right? Maybe their sadness, they're upset over this change starts to go into a couple of months. Then we're talking about a significant change that has been, is the root of this depressive disorder. Um, that would be the adjustment piece. So earlier, I believe somebody said, you know, do you have it or can, can it manifest if those weren't the exact words? Um, both are true. So, you know, we have people who absolutely, it's a, seems to be, even though, Really, there are very little things that are 100%, but seems to be 100% genetic, a chemistry rather thing where the biochemicals are off and, and that's it. That's the presentation. It's where depression came from, for lack of a better way to say it. And then we have people who say, um, Lord, lost a child, right? And then it's two years later and they maybe haven't left the house or haven't gone back into, um, life yet. Can they be considered, you know, they're beyond the bereavement phase and I'm using air quotes a lot of times. I know they can't see, but some of this stuff is just very difficult to put into language. We have that episode coming up too. Um, Mm -hmm. It's coming. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And so there are all, I mean, all kinds of things. Let's say somebody who's dealing with, 
um, their sexuality. Let's say their sexuality is one that isn't, mm-hmm. you know, accepted by their religion or by their family or whatnot. And so they keep it inside. You know, they may not have a family history of depression, but life circumstances, keeping secrets, not being our full expression of ourselves mm. can manifest after some time with significant Gosh, depression. that just like okay. hurts my heart when people can't be their authentic self. And just to know that you hold space for people like that, you know, all in all categories is just a really big testimony to who you are, Liz. So, wow. Thank you for that. I feel like the answer to that question was yes, no, and maybe. <laughs> yeah, always exactly. and never. Yes, no, maybe, always and never was the answer. Because yeah. yeah. you said a lot there. There's, there's a lot of ways depression can manifest itself. Um, and you've also said that basically it can be chemical. It can be situational. It can be both a mixture of. So we wade into that a little bit more of is someone capable of being truly having a major depressive disorder without the chemical part? Mm, That's a good question. Um, I would say by the time you have met criteria for a major depressive disorder, your chemicals are affected. Okay. Period. So, um, meaning if, um, I mean, there, you may be having cortisol from stress, uh, that's chronic stress and that cortisol may be making everything else like serotonin, dopamine. I mean, Ooh, it's, it's so all connected. chemical, so but not genetic. One of the, right, exactly. So one of the, um, one of the things that we look at when diagnosing depression is what's going on with a person's body. And I know I referenced the, um, you know, chronic pain and digestive disorders. show up at your office with a blanket. Beyond that. (laughs) (laughs) They're not doing well. Beyond that, we look at psychomotor um, speed. Uh, So with, again, a major depressive disorder or clinical depression, things begin to get slower. So you'll hear someone say, I feel like I'm walking through water, or that's a question I may ask too. You know, does it feel like everything is like, I mean, it, it feels so slow and heavy. Sometimes you'll even notice in significant depression, whereas anxiety, your thoughts typically go faster and in ruminating they do. With depression, it's like that that fog in your brain and it's slow. Can't quite put a thought together. It, it's, it can't it always put a thought together. Um, I often get the image of, um, I can be very visual, but say the, the, what are these things that you use? The squeezy balls? Your car balls. Oh, oh. <laughs> no, jumper, jumper cables. cables. Jumper cables. So yeah, it's as if the jumper cables need to be put in, right? To, to get, get the brain on, on board. And I'll hear people say, I mean, you'll see a lot of indecisiveness, difficulty concentrating, um, a lack of a sense or real awareness of time, you know, in this real significant depression. Um, and then it's just moving like where, where did this go or where did that go? But the slowness is a part of, we look at, um, we may look at psychomotor agitation, which would be somebody who can't sit still or is picking always, or, you know, we're looking at that and different types of disorders and depression. We're looking into 
is everything just really slowed down. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> Gail had, had to process a lot there. <laughs> number three. Again, we've got always, never, sometimes, maybe, yes, no. It's like, Liz, did you go to school 15 years for this? I mean, this is crazy. Um, so, okay. Wins. Here's the deal with school. Let me mention that too, is that there's so much of the, you know, you can go to school for surfing, right? But until you are out mm. in the ocean on your surfboard and regularly surfing amongst the sharks and the other surfers and whatever else, you know, we are learning on the job. So there's a lot that I learned in school that, um, it helped my knowledge, right? So it helped the education. And then there's a lot that you learn from being in the water and surfing and a lot that you people. So people teach me. My mm, clients that's teach beautiful. Me all the time. What does this look like? And I want to make sure I don't miss your question. What does it look like to get help? That That's the first thing it looks like to me is to figure out as a therapist is to figure out what are we dealing with here? Are we dealing with something that's stressful in the environment, a significant change, whatever it may be? Or are we dealing with, um, you know, depression, anxiety? How serious is it? How much is it affecting them? So what you can expect um, from a first visit is a lot of questions. And I think it's awesome um, to, if you can, or if you have a partner that, or anyone that can help you come up with some ways that you're going to really discuss with your provider, how this is affecting you in some tangible ways. Okay. I know this is, you're going to say that's the most ridiculous question. You know, I can't answer that, but kind of where's the boundary, where's the line from someone who is suffering from grief, who is depressed, who is overwhelmed when, do we need to see a therapist or did we need to see one yesterday? I, I'm a firm believer, Elias, I'm sure you're going to agree with this and we could write the bill for the state of South Carolina, but I really think it should be mental wellness and that it should be treated just like we have preventative medicine and we go preventative physicals annually. Mm -hmm. I think we should have a visit with a therapist at least annually and we should have a therapy provider, a, a psychological provider, just like you have a gynecologist and an eye doctor possibly in your nose and throat mm -hmm. and help, you know, let's, let's set a bar that we're being monitored throughout our life for changes. Because when I've taken my children in for therapy and they wouldn't mind me saying this, I remember telling the provider, I want to get my child any help they need before it becomes a real deep need. I want to treat this as normative. I want to, I, I want to treat the small issues I mean, we don't wait till MRSA rots our leg off to go into the see a, a general practitioner. So when should we see someone and who should we see? Should we start by telling our GP or gynecologist or should we, what, when and what first? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, I am biased and think everybody just go on to counseling, right? <laughs> yeah. So I'm a little bit better. Although we don't about have that. enough people. Also, it's not, we don't have enough counselors. Right. We don't no, have No, we don't. The, you know, Especially out here in California. Insurance needs to step no, up as far as um, being able to make, make uh, coverage, coverage for everything. everything. So, so um, um, as far as when should you get help for it? 
And I'm also aware that if we're talking about somebody who is depressed, remembering what we just said, I mean, that it's difficult to make decisions. It's difficult to think thoroughly. And so we'll have this, it's a flooded brain, essentially. So with great compassion and respect for that, if in that state, you can say to yourself, I'm suffering, I am suffering. You don't have to know why. You don't. Allow yourself to not know why. Am I suffering because I just went through a divorce six months ago? Am I suffering because my kid, you know, has my last kid's gone to college? I'm empty nest. Am I suffering because whatever? Because the what happens when we try to put something to that? And most people don't feel, notice I'm using the word suffering on purpose. Most people don't feel they're suffering after three or four days of feeling the blues. That's a whole different, or I'm a little sad, or I'm, I'm adjusting to this, or I've cried all week because I'm an empty nester now, or whatever it is, right? Suffering, it has more longevity to it, and that I just feel like I can't get my feet under or underneath me. I can't feel like I can't get going with the life. Then, then go to who you can go to is the answer to my second, your second question, Gail, which is where do you go? If you have friends that, you know, go to counseling, talk to them, find out who they go see. Earlier, you said you can't interview all your therapists. I recommend it. And if you call some, if that's something that you can do and want to do, which is to have an interview with someone or have a discussion with a therapist before meeting them, do it. If they don't have time for that, they'll tell you that's fine. You can go on to somebody else. Um, but if you have a community of friends or family that are, you know, have been involved in therapy, talk to them. See if you can get an appointment. Last podcast I was on, Gail mentioned the employee assistance program. You can look into for yourself or your family member to see if your workplace has an employee assistance program. You can call them. It's very common it, too, guys. It's you, ve- most employers of any size have that, right, Liz? Which is typically an average of about six visits. Mm-hmm. So if you just right. want to find and out if you... What's, what's great about that is yeah, so if, they can yeah, assess and yeah. refer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if you're just not sure, is this something I need to do anything different about? You go to an... <laughs> you know, see if they can assess it for the refer. These days, there's a lot of things that can be happening virtually too. So one of the positives COVID may have brought in is doing more telehealth types of things to screen that out. Mm -hmm. Now, um, there's, you know, when I'm consulting with someone, and I typically say, whoever's in front of you that is qualified and, and you feel safe disclosing to, if it's going to take six weeks to get into a counselor's office. It might take that long. Or if you don't even know where to begin, but you have your appointment, you know, to get your blood pressure checked next week. Yes. Tell your internist, tell your doctor. Um, If you don't know where to start, if you don't have this community that just talks a lot about therapists, right? Like I do, because I am a therapist, then make an appointment with your general physician. Go in and say, I'm struggling. And there is... Your constitutional rights, as far as, you know, Gail discussing her fear that she wasn't going to be um, able to go home the day she went into counseling, right? Your, those are your constitutional rights, um, is that we cannot take away your ability to, I mean, to live your life as you choose to live it unless 
we can say without a shadow of a doubt that you are a danger to yourself mm-hmm. or you're a danger to someone yes. else. If we can see those two things are clear, and by the way, there are a lot of very, very sick people who don't meet that criteria. So if those, if you go in and you are a danger to yourself, you're you're really thinking about suicide. You've had a very recent attempt and are likely to have another one very soon. Then the hospital is the best place for you to be because that's crisis management. It's not at all where I want to send people unless they need mm. to go. The hospital is great if you are legitimately a danger to yourself or someone else. Otherwise, what's going to happen is a doctor, if you see your doctor, um, would likely discuss medication management with you and would hopefully refer you to a counselor or a therapist with that. Not all do. Um, If you go see a therapist or counselor, they will assess maybe in one session, maybe in more than one session, you know, to what degree your um, symptoms are showing. And then also, what is your willingness? There are some people who are really not interested in medication Mm. management. And so if I, as a therapist, think they make a benefit from it, and they're really not, that's not really for them, then I may, I would definitely be honest. I think you can benefit from this, but let's try some other things first. Let's try some cognitive behavior therapy, try some um, relaxation therapy, again, just depending on what some of those roots are that are exasperating the depression. So Liz, when you were talking about medications, tell us some, uh, because I know that some people are like, oh gosh, I have to take a medication. They get all weird about taking medications. And some are like, okay, well, how do I know which one to take? And, you know, is it okay to say, oh, this isn't working? How long does the medication take to take effect? You know, there's some real questions that are developed when you're thinking about medication. I know for myself, when I was younger, I had to go through several different medications to finally find the one that made me still feel and made me uh, like it was just like me, you you know, just me again. So, so Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about that. Okay. So first of all, that's the goal. What you just said is that we want to feel like ourselves again. That's the goal with any medication management. The goal is not to be a zombie. The goal is not to be drooling, right? The goal is not to be um, or to feel a way that doesn't feel normal for you. So for me, with um, some postpartum OCD and postpartum depression, when the medicine really started working and when I got the right medicine for me, I those are exact words out of my mouth. I feel more like me. So know that's what to gauge it on. A lot of the medicines that are used to treat depression um, are SSRIs, which are the serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Um, basically means it does something in your brain with the serotonin and it, it assists with that, right? There are medicines that treat depression that aren't SSRIs, but SSRIs are going to typically be the first go-to um, most physicians will start you on. Um, you know, it, there are, I do want to make mention of this. It is not wild, widely covered by insurance, but they, 
there is a trend, thank goodness, that's moving more towards genetic testing to determine what medicines would fit right wow. for you um, based on your genetic panel versus what medicines may not be so great for oh, you. Oh, I love okay. that. It this is interesting because my son yeah. had this years ago when we this were looking good. at ADD for him. And we have a local pediatrician. You know which one I'm sure Liz um, starts, last name starts with an F. And one of my, he's just my fave. And he actually ordered that for my child. And I thought it was so incredibly helpful and responsible. It cost us money out of pocket. But he came back with this list, and I know a lot of people poo-pooed it, but I'm glad to hear you say it's becoming more prominent because it not only told us what medications might be helpful for mental health, it said if he has surgery, these are the things that will probably control his pain best. These are the anesthetics that would probably work for him. And we already knew that my child has a, had a, some type of sensitivity to ibuprofen, and it seemed to have built up over time. And what that the testing confirmed without knowing that, that he was unable to ment- metabolize it well. And so therefore, when it builds up in his body, it caused a reaction. So that's when I knew the test was not kapui because it picked up on something that we already knew. But we have a copy of that and it's a forever kind of thing. The doc said, keep this. And anytime you seek medication or, you know, have surgery for him. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And uh, what is that test it. called? What is it called, it's, Gail? I'll have to look it up, Liz. Do you know? Okay. I don't know off the top of my head. But your either. provider should know, know if you should start describing it because this has probably been five years ago, maybe longer since we had it done. And my doctor was just a little bit progressive. He wasn't one that liked to just fill these kids up with Ritalin. He was very careful Good. to get the right medication and it tired. To the right level, which a lot of doctors don't like to fool with. And you got to get a doctor that's willing to go through that. The same with your SSRIs. They Mm -hmm. have to be Mm -hmm. managed. One may work for you, one may not, even though they're the same category. I know the first one I tried, the very first night, I had the craziest nightmares. I thought it was coming out of my skin. I called the doctor immediately and she kind of poo-pooed it. It wasn't Liz. Liz doesn't prescribe medication. It was my GP and she's like, there's no way it's in your system. And I said, I am telling you something's not right. And I'm not taking that again. And she changed me and it was fine after that. Um, So I think we have to listen to our bodies to listen to our mind. But Liz, Mm -hmm. I know that we here probably know these things, but just in fairness to our audience, I'd love for you to talk about who prescribes medication and who doesn't and the different types of providers in the field of both physical and mental health and wellness, what does each type of provider bring to the table? Right. So this is something that is a very common question. And and I get it because there's a lot of titles and degrees that are thrown around and people are like, what on earth? Who do I go to for what? So in order to prescribe medications, um, it's going to be an MD uh, or a nurse practitioner. Um, in South Carolina, for sure, I think this is across the country, um, but it, you typically have to have a nurse practitioner with a psych specialty um, in order to really um, address more of the psych meds. Um, 
So that's who prescribes. So if they, in other words, if they go to somebody like me, who's a licensed clinical social worker, or somebody that has LPC behind their name, which stands for licensed professional counselor, or marriage and family counselor, licensed marriage and family counselor, um, those people will not prescribe meds. And in truth, other than in recommending or referring you to talk to a medical professional about medication really shouldn't have a lot to say about medication because it's not our scope of practice, right? So my scope of practice, I'm talking out of school here. So when I talk about medicines, I can say this medicine had an effect on this person or whatever it may be, but to be able to determine for you what medicine is right for you, that has to be somebody who is in the medical field, which would be a nurse practitioner or a doctor. So they've got the ner- term, now, they've got the letters NP or MD or possibly OD after their name, right? Okay. Correct. I mm-hmm. want to do for Che a little bit more here and just because these terms have come up and they're also real popular with the kids to talk all these terms. Therapists and counselors differentiate between therapists and counselors, psychologists, and psychiatrists. You delineate Mm -hmm. that for us just for good measure. So a psychiatrist, no, this is excellent, Gail. I'm grateful that you're asking because I'm sure a Mm -hmm. lot of people want to know because I answer this question quite a good bit. Um, A psychiatrist is somebody who is a medical doctor. They have gone to school for what um, forever, right? I so think it's four a, years it, into it's their medical year thing because that's what my son wants to do. Help us all, right? So they've been to school for their medical degree, then they've gone into um, the specialty after that, and then they can receive their psych. So a lot of that. So they are always MDs. That's just something okay. That but the services does. they provide, they don't. That you know, for the most part, it's medication management okay. and it's writing prescriptions. I say for the most part because there are psychiatrists. Typically, you'll find these psychiatrists are people who are in private practice and often don't bill insurance, um, so they have more flexibility with cash paying clients. But it's it it isn't out. It's, it's not something I've never heard of. I've heard of a psychiatrist offering therapy, but it's it's not the norm. And has the that norm changed? Is that because, you know, used to when you watched Bob Newhart or anything on TV, you went to a psychiatrist and they laid on the couch. And th- I think for a lot of our population, they still believe that a psychiatrist does that kind of therapy. And most of them nowadays don't. Right. And I think it's great. You're correct. They don't. Um, you know, I think it's great that they have that our expectations are uh, clear because I have also heard of people that go to see a psychiatrist. Typically, these appointments are scheduled with a psychiatrist, same as they would be if you go see a physician for anything. New appointment, new um, new patient, in other words, are typically 30 minutes. Medication checks are typically 15 minutes in the schedule. That doesn't mean that a doctor sticks to them. Sometimes they do. Um, and I have seen many people disappointed after a meeting with a psychiatrist and having their meds adjusted and say that, you know, I was only in there for 15, 20 minutes. And, it, you know, because what they were wanting, maybe they needed the medication, but what they were also wanting was more connection, more time and more understanding 
And that's where because I think there's this also this misconception that psychiatrists are the top of the food chain. So if if I want to get the best treatment, I'm going to go to the psychiatrist. He is the most training. But the, the secret to this is knowing who you need for which thing. And so we want you to understand um you don't go to a psychiatrist for therapy, even if you did watch the psych next door. That's not. <laughs> did you the straight next door? Did you watch it, Liz? Have you read the <laughs> listen to the podcast? Mm-hmm. Fantastic podcast, but would probably frighten people away from therapy. But that's not what you're typical. And that story was from a long time ago. And I think a long time ago, maybe that was the case because now we have all those these psych. What do we call them? Psychotropic, psycho, psychoactive. Are you referring to medicine? Medicines. People? There are psychotropics as far as medicines go. Yeah. Um, finish your question. Uh, there. We have more of these medications. So is that what's caused some of that shift that we it needed to define someone to, to handle that? And that's all they have time to handle? How, why is that shifted? Or, or am I just, it's a perception. Um, no, I think it probably has shifted. I'm not sure if I'm as in the know about that historically, um, but I'm interested in as you're sharing it and a lot's coming to me. So for instance, what's coming to me is the birth of psychoanalysis and, um, you know, prior to psychoanalysis and, and Freud and Jung and all the people who perfected that after, um, or are still in the process of perfecting that, I should say. Prior to that, uh, the people were just being institutionalized. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, we had lobotomies. I mean, people were getting their, you know, brain cut into, yeah. And so it's not that it's never been handled medically before. Mm -hmm. It certainly was. Um, And when you talk about way back in the day, it was handled in a way where you were were locked up um, and had, significant surgeries and so forth. And labeled as crazy. Labeled as crazy. Yes, labeled as crazy. Absolutely. Those type of terms are what we used. Well, they call them insane asylums. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the history. Where I grew up, I grew up in Georgia. And they would say, you're going to Milledgeville. That was a term because Milledgeville was the state insane asylum. And there were jokes made about that. Mm -hmm. But it's actually very serious and very sad what happened to people who struggled some to get locked away like that. Just to understand if you're listening, that's not today's medic- medicine. That's not today's um, psychiatry, psychology, any of this. So stepping down from psychiatrist with, you know, ton of education, MD, psychologist, what would they do for someone? So a psychologist has their PhD in psychology. And a lot of times psychologists are doing um, they can do more testing, more objective testing. So that could be, you're going to, you know, it could be a couple of hours of test. This would be for somebody who um, is really just maybe curious as to what exactly am I dealing with here? So if I've made referrals for adults, a lot of times um, testing like that, I mean, there are hundreds of tests, but to go through a battery of tests, typically children are referred to that um, to Full you know, for educational testing. reasons. And then to, mm-hmm, right now, but uh, there are a lot of adults who do this too. And so particularly say somebody who is elderly, they may look into seeing a PhD or a psychologist for testing. Is this something that's 
uh, going on with the brain, like some something's happening uh, degeneratively in the brain, or you know, early onset of dementia or something. Uh, if there, so for me, when I'm referring an adult, then I'm either referring to testing with a PhD. I'm either referring them because it's been court ordered. Sometimes going through custody disputes, you. It's court ordered, um, or I'm referring because they have a very scientific like mind, right? So they want to know evidence as to what this is, and so if they typically have to pay out of pocket, you can pay out of pocket, and then they you can have these more objective tests run to say it looks like we're dealing with major depressive disorder or whatnot. And the third reason why I may refer an adult to testing is if. They are reporting things that sound like psychotic symptoms, but it's just not very clear to me. Or if they've not had any success with counseling or medication management, if there's a piece that I think um, these more objective tests can bring us. Now, having said that, there are PhDs who are in private practice that also do counseling. um, You know, like I do counseling. And um, so it's not... you just won't get testing done like a PhD or a psychologist can do with an LPC, a licensed marriage and family therapist or a licensed clinical social worker. But you typically will see that, or you sometimes will see a PhD in private practice also offering counseling. Okay. So then we have- It's real confusing. But I think people sometimes think, oh, if I go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist, that's going to be better treatment. It's not that Mm. that's better treatment in my mind, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's getting the right thing for your needs. And so if you need to do talk therapy or um, the tapping, what is that called, EFT? EFT, Emotional Freedom Technique. And there's Mm -hmm. another one that has to do with EMDR. EMDR. Eye Movement Desensitization Reprocessing, which is for people with post-traumatic stress disorder. Those things would Mm -hmm. be primarily from a therapist, right? Correct. Absolutely. And so, I mean, I have so much compassion as we're talking about this too. I'm just like, oh gosh, this is so stressful. And this is just trying to navigate who does what. And this is the world that I'm in. And so I know it. But when you are in that world, you don't know who does what and why. And and so again, the goal is, is talk to somebody and then the more well you are, the more you can do research on your own. But absolutely, there are therapists that that's part of why I believe therapy became um, more ideal is because the physicians who chose to do that, the psychiatrists could focus more on med management and dealing with the individuals who had a physical component to it and who may be really, really, really sick. Um, whereas, you know, the therapist, and when I say therapist, I'm including licensed marriage and family therapists, licensed professional counselors, licensed clinical social workers. What we do is looking, are looking at things from a much more holistic perspective from within the family, from within the person, finding things that they might could do, um, to improve their life day to day. And I love that you brought up those two, um, types of treatment is that what we're learning uh, all together as a field is that talk therapy is great for some people and doesn't always get to the root issue. And sometimes we need to do more significant or more um, effective things rather that you can still do in your therapist office, right? Like it's not anything that's going to be 
scary, but those things do include tapping on certain meridians of the body, or they may include what we said, EMDR, moving your eyes certain ways. It could include meditation. For people with significant phobias, it's called exposure therapy to gradually expose to what their um, deepest fears are with that. So yeah, you're going to get more of the counseling um, uh, specifics with a licensed marriage and family therapist, an LPC, or an LCSW, which is a licensed clinical social wow. worker. Okay. Just this to, was a whole lot, right, yeah. Gail? Like, I'm just yeah. like, oh, my hair's blown back. To kind of finish that off, I want to say, um, I, I do want to make it clear that going to see a therapist just because people say, I just, I don't want to just go somewhere and just talk. I'm like, no, you don't understand. There is a treatment modality put in place and it could be CBT, the cognitive behavioral therapy. It can be the EFT, the EMDR. You as the therapist are going to decide that and make those decisions with the patient. Um, So I just want to make that clear. This is just not yappy, yappy. I'm going to talk and feel better. So that's a whole nother show. And we're trying to put together a show on tapping. And now that you've said that, I think we should include EMDR in that because those are kind of, there's some relation there, right? So, okay. So now we're. It's bringing it to the body. But yes, it. I love that you said with the clients. Yes, you have a say in that, mm. right? So I'll have people come to me because they know I do a particular modality. They've looked into it, right? And then some people come to me and say, oh, I don't want to do, you know, I don't want to tap on anywhere. I don't want to do EMDR or anything like that. So fine. But in general, even if it seems as if we are, quote, just talking, we're doing a whole lot more yeah. than talking. Somebody who's at least good at their job. I've, I'm assessing and, the whole and time. Some people, right, Liz, if, if I'm not mistaken, some people might need all three, correct? So we might need a psychiatrist to prescribe the medicine. We might need to go to the psychologist to identify a little bit deeper what's going on. And then the therapist, that is, I think, a key component to dive in the weeds, as we say, to untangle everything that we've just, you know, started, started engaging in with our health and with, you know, wellness, our mental wellness. Right. Yes, correct. Some people might need all three. I love that, Liz. And we're quickly running out of time, but there's a few things we want to get to. Um, You know, what do you say to the person who like, where does someone start? Are you saying start with your general practitioner or a therapist? Is that the best place to start? And what do you say to the, particularly the girl, because I'm just seeing the girl, I, I know my friends, I know what my struggles have been. That's just, she can barely get out of the bed. She just can't seem to get away. The mornings are hard. And I think they can be hard nights and mornings um, for a lot of people. What do you say to her? So um, to answer your first question, you start with where you can. Again, if you, if you, like I said earlier, if you can, if you know people have gone to counseling, call and uh, see if you can schedule an appointment. If you can get in with your internist or someone more quickly or your OBGYN or GYN, get in with them. So start with, start with some, somebody, right? But this is how I'm feeling, particularly if you're really suffering. Yeah. So what do you say to the friend? Um, and again, this is such a scale of issues. So if, if somebody is, 
talking to you about suicide and wanting to take their life, you might be having a whole different a conversation than with a friend that you've noticed a slower deterioration of their hygiene, um, of their participation in activities that they may have used to participate in, or like you said, have a difficult time getting out of bed and you're finding that their habits change. And, um, so with, with that friend, the first thing to do is to leave your judgments at the door, leave your, um, your own preconceived notions of what you think somebody else needs to do for their life. Uh, leave that at the door and you love them with a very open heart and a very truthful speak too. meaning I love you. And, um, because I love you, I have to be honest with you. This is what I'm seeing, you know, and then describe the facts. This, this, I've noticed that you've not come to our monthly whatever for the last six months now. I've noticed that when I have seen you, you, you've been crying each time. You know, again, these are very personal things. Maybe it's things, even if it's somebody who's your best friend, maybe they don't want to tell you. That's okay. You just reiterate. And if I love you, feels uncomfortable for you, you reiterate your, your, your positive rapport towards the person. And you let them know that the reason why you're saying anything at all anyway is because you care about them and that you think that they're suffering and struggling. Is, is that true? Are they? And if they say, no, I'm not, and you think, oh, I really think they are, and you say, I hear you. And if you ever feel like you want to talk to somebody about that, I could always, you know, here's, if you know a number, here's a number, here's somebody you could call. And also I'm here for you if you change your mind and never want to explore some of and that if, too. if you're the girl that's having trouble getting out of the bed, what do you say to that girl? The, what do you say to the girl who's telling no, you these things? What would you right? say to her? Me? What would you say to the girl who said, I just can't get out of the bed. I just want to sleep. I just. Well, what I would say is, and I, and I say it that way because uh, all my friends know what I do for a living, right? <laughs> so um, it's a little different. It really is. It's a little different than, I mean, if, if they've invited Liz over, then they know what they're getting into inviting Liz over. I mean, so. Um, but say somebody who isn't in this field where it might not be as, um, I mean, it, it's just understood that I'm going to be talking to you about maybe getting into some counseling or talking to your doctor. But, you know, as far as getting, if somebody's saying, I just can't get out of the bed, you know, maybe, maybe be present long enough to allow them to keep sharing if it's possible. And if you don't have time, then set aside time to do that and say, this sounds really important. It sounds like you have a lot going on. Let's give me a call later today or, or let's meet tomorrow. I want to come over and talk to you more about this because you're, you're important to me. And I'm, I'm hearing that this has been a, a well, trying if season that's, If you're you. the person and suffering listen. with that, is it fair to say that's time to call the therapist? And if you have a therapist, call them. If not, get one. Yes. If somebody is saying those things to you. Well, if, if like, if, if someone asked you, said, I'm having trouble getting out of the bed, what would you come see me? 
Yeah. I mean, it, it just depends on who you're talking to, right? So if, whereas Christina may come up to me and I know she's very open to therapy and, and would be willing to go, but I'll just pretend she's somebody that she's actually not, <laughs> right? So it's knowing the person. So if Christina comes up to me and says the same thing, and I say, I think you need to go into counseling, I may have just lost Christina mm-hmm. altogether, right? Because she may be so anti-therapy, doesn't, it may have taken all she could do to open herself up to tell me who's her neighbor or whatnot, right? And it may have taken all the courage you could have. That doesn't mean you don't circle around to ultimately saying, you deserve a better life. You deserve a higher quality of life. You deserve to not have to suffer every single day through every moment of the day. And then you ultimately do, of course, refer them to their physician. You ask more questions than tell. So for instance, you could say, if it's somebody you aren't sure, so, you know, to use, uh, let's say I know Gail's going to be very open to therapy, right? I'll say, girl, call your therapist. Well, you know, or you need, if I know they have one. So it, it depends on how well you know the person. If you don't know well enough what their stance is on mental wellness or mental health, or, you know, receiving assistance for that, then ask questions. Have you talked with anybody about this? You know, one of the things that I do. Yeah, who have you talked to about that? That is one of the things that I do when I'm not sure. I just say, wow, have you ever thought about therapy? I say, that has really helped me. Here's what I've already done in my past. I've been to a psychiatrist. I've been to a psychologist. I have been to a therapist. And for me, this is what I have found so that they don't feel alone. In the sharing. It's gorgeous. It's perfect. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that too, because that is, um, yeah. So listening, asking questions, um, getting out of the way. And then also, yes, saying we never want to pretend as if we know what it's like to be someone. And I didn't get that from you at all, you know, in, in your tone and how you were saying that, but we want people to know they're Mm -hmm. not alone. So I may not know what it's like to be you and gone through the things that you've gone through. But, you know, I've seen a psychiatrist or I've seen a therapist or I've had struggles in my life. Nobody is going to say because they aren't going to be as confident in telling their story. I just ignored my depression for six years and look at me now. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. So I love that, though, creating this unity and this bond with somebody that's like, you're not alone. We're in this together. And if you don't know who to call, I'll be happy to help you look up some some places to Mm. call. Well, this has been such a great conversation just all about, I just think, the umbrella of depression or um, just the way we can handle handle it um, with other people, the therapy, the medications, the, uh, you know, who does this affect? Um, and it seems like it affects everybody. It can affect everybody. It doesn't matter what age. It doesn't matter what. Ge- it doesn't matter what gender. It doesn't matter what culture. Everybody can be affected, and there's ways that we can support and come alongside and be there in the midst of their suffering. And I just absolutely love that you have come on and just shared all of this with us, Gail. What about you, Liz? Here's what I'm thinking in my brain that I would. I'd like to kind of touch on in ending is, and you tell me true or not, it it seems as though the message would be just because you've never struggled doesn't mean you won't. 
Mm. And just because you're struggling doesn't mean you always will. Fair, accurate? A hundred percent. So um, this too shall pass has, um, you know, offered me the opportunity to experience joy in my life, right? Because sometimes the things that when things are really good, that doesn't always stick to you. So it, it, doesn't have to stay this way. And yeah, if, if, first of all, I don't think you've made it in this long unless you had something that uh, you resonated with in this discussion. But it just because you haven't suffered doesn't mean that you won't. And I would really encourage you, if you feel like you have judgments about seeking help for things like mood, depression, to really just examine that. What's that about these judgments that I have? Because you yourself could one day really be um, somebody who could benefit from it. So here you go. You do not have to live with this pain and suffering. There's help available and help may look like one of many modalities. Um, it could be therapy. And you don't have to decide the modality. You right? Just go to a therapist and let them give you the recommendations. And also for those who say, well, I don't want to be popped up on a bunch of pills. You may not be. And if you do, it will be based on your willingness and your agreement. Um, and like Liz said, unless you're about to take somebody else out or you yourself are going to do, you know, self-harm, serious self-harm, you're not going to be locked up against your will. Um, you're not going to be forced onto medications against your will. You're not going to receive, you know, electric shock therapy. It's a new day. It's a new day. And there are more and more medications available every day. There's more and more types of therapy like EMDR, like EFT, um, you know, meditation. There's so many things we can do to have a healthy mind and a healthy mental state. That's not everyone's story, just to be clear. There are some people that their illnesses will require medications to live any way what we would consider a normative life. That's that's the facts, unfortunately. But for the large portion of us, there's help, y'all. And even if, like we said, if you're a man listening, get the help. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength to know what you are and what you're not. I think it's a sign of strength to know when you're well and when you're not. And just like you would go to the doctor for sore throat, if your mind is not well, go see someone, talk to someone. And here's the other thing. If you're not happy with the answer you get, trust someone else. Um, just, and I, I don't mean keep Absolutely. going to the therapist tells you you're right. And I also want to, you to understand that that's not what therapists here for to um, tell you you're right and your husband's wrong or that your workplace is wrong. That's not what they do. They're, their job is to help you cope with whatever the situation is, and they'll make recommendations if they think it needs to change. But mm-hmm. Liz, I know that this is going to make a difference for someone out there, and it's such a big topic. I'm going to go ahead and put it out there for you to come back again. Yes, and it's to continue yes. some more. Can, will you just be our our girl, our regular mental? Yeah, health? you're just going to have to be. I'll, I'll be your <laughs> regular. Yes, I love it. Enjoy being with She's you. She's a moxie partner officially. Y'all she heard is. it here. So we just, um, (laughs) and if you, I'm going to say this, if you are nervous about going to therapy, call your girlfriend and ask her to go with you. Ask her to drive you. Take your Mm -hmm. freaking blanket. That's what I did. I literally showed up with a blanket and I don't know why, but for some reason, this blanket brought me comfort in that season. Um, And even if you think it's short term, if you think anything could be out of what we would consider health, 
you know, if it's grief that's lasting extra long time and there are no guidelines necessarily that are hard and fast on grief, but it's about how you're handling it. You know, if it's lasting on time, but you're handling it well, that's fine. You know, if you're stressed, but go let a professional tell you what is normal. That was so helpful to me to be told. I had been through some extremely traumatic situations in a short period of time. And I just thought I should handle it. You know, that's what I always did. And Liz is like, um, no, that's pretty significant. Do you know how much weight that took off me when you said that that day, Liz? So some of you just need to go in and let someone tell you you're okay. It's going well, to the be other, okay. The other part of it too, Gail, at least for, for me in my 20s, I didn't even know that I had some of these disorders because I couldn't identify it because there wasn't a lot of conversation going on about it. Mm -hmm. And there's more conversation nowadays to where I can say, wow, I mean, if people really knew the things that I have seen, the things that I have been, had happened to me, they would be like, dude, do you have PTSD? Like what is like, seriously, this is a, this is a really traumatic thing. And Though I don't really like labels or like to subscribe to them, it's really helpful to say, wow, that could be something that's really deep inside. And yeah, that might be an accurate diagnosis. <laughs> I laugh about it today because I'm, I'm in a healthier space. But man, I think that uh, we have definitely just scratched the surface of opening up this dialogue, you know? Right. And I do want to mention before we go today too, though, you know, one of the things, you know, that may make it um, easier perhaps to, to discuss is another metaphor I use is in regards to vision. You know, so we have people who are blind, right? We have people who can't see a thing. We have people who are blind, but can see, but, you know, can't drive. Um, and then there are all different types of vision stuff in between where one eye can be this, you know, maybe just for reading or seeing far away or what mental health is just like that, which is why I think in some of the discussion today, we're, you know, it gets a little confusing if we're talking about how significant to the point of needing hospitalization versus, you know, yes, defined as depressed and yet I'm nowhere near needing hospitalization. Not that that's good you know, or bad. It's just not what the treatment needs are in that. So if you're looking at, you know, your everyday uh, more um, like I can function, I've got my job and stuff, but I'm, I'm still not where I want to be. Still talk to somebody. This is your yeah, life. You don't prescribe right? your own you eyeglasses. You, know, you don't life. treat your own mm -hmm. eye on it. Exactly. Get with a professional. Get with a professional. And we just want to end with this. If you're out there and you are feeling blue, you're having any kind of thoughts of self-harm or harming anyone else, cutting suicidal ideations, please immediately call a therapist, call a friend, call a hotline, take an action. Call a hotline. Take an action. And um, if even if you don't get the response, you won't keep taking action until someone listens because someone will. And there's help available and you don't have to suffer like this and you don't have to feel this way. So. We'll end with that. And we wish everyone mental wellness. And we want to normalize these conversations. We don't ever want to use them as excuses or the flavor of the month. 
but we want to normalize you being mentally healthy as well as physically healthy. And we just so appreciate Liz. Liz could be somewhere earning a paycheck right now. And when she's gives in this time free, so I hope you guys know what, what value that is. And we thank you so much, Liz. And one of the other things, if you're listening, you guys, can you email us at midlifemoxiepodcast at gmail.com? Any questions that you might have for our next episode with Liz, we want to definitely be able to serve you well. And she's a wealth of knowledge. And so if it can help you, it helps us as a community. So make sure you're getting in and um, giving us some questions that you might have. And you can be rest assured that it will all be private. Like we're not going to throw your name out and be like, oh, so-and-so said this. That's not what we're here to do. We just want to definitely normalize the conversation. Gail and Christina will be diagnosing no one. <laughs> You'll be willing to know. But we do have our new Facebook group up, Christina, Midlife Moxie. Yes. If you're not in that, please join. And if you want to have a conversation there with like-minded women, please throw it out for discussion. Elias, are you in the group yet? I think I invited you. I hope you're in the group. Mm-hmm. Liz might even, we're not going to hold Liz to practicing medicine in there or therapy in there, but she might can answer a quick question. We're not going to hold yeah. her to that, but we'll just see what happens. But um, know that we've created this community for a place for us to get to know you better and it to be more of a two-way street because we're going to hear and yap, yap, yap. We want to give you a chance to yap back and mm-hmm. to talk to one another and build and grow community. And I think that's how we're going to make the most of Midlife Moxie. So until next time, Christina, what do we say? Go and get your moxie on. Bye, y'all.